Right, church, go ahead and grab a seat if you would. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I want to welcome those of you watching online. Thanks for bearing with us uh, as we mingle in the room and uh, really try to connect with one another as the church should. If you've got a Bible with you, Acts chapter 2. If you've been tracking along with us in this series, we've encouraged you to try to use this summer to read through the entire book of Acts. Uh, but tonight we'll be in the second chapter working through a section. Uh, and we have had the privilege each week of having someone who is core to our YA family read the scripture for us. And so I'm going to welcome Nissa to the stage wherever she went. Oh, there she is. Ha! She's up there. Uh, and we're going to hear the word of God spoken over us tonight. Here is the word of the night. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Amen. Thank you, Nissa. That was awesome. Hey, I hope you listen closely to that or have a Bible open in front of you because what you actually just heard in the last three to four minutes was, I'm going to make this contention tonight, the first Christian sermon. Uh, I'm going to make the contention tonight that that was the first Christian sermon that you just heard over the last three or four minutes. And you might ask the question, all right, when did sermons go from three, four minutes to Brian Howard length? And I don't have a good answer to that, all right? But, but, but here's what I do know. 
I know that Jesus died on the cross, went into the grave, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and then the church begins its mission. So, of course, Jesus gave sermon, and there were messages before that. But this is the first sermon after Jesus ascends into heaven. If you were here last week, the Holy Spirit of God falls down upon the people of God, and now they're out there, and there's this whole commotion. And Peter, the apostle Peter, gets up in front of everyone and tries to bring clarity to a very confusing moment and gives what you just heard tonight was the first Christian sermon. And tonight, I want to dial in on that sermon because here's what Peter was doing during the sermon. Peter was trying to convince people of something. Peter was trying to persuade people of something. He was getting up in front of thousands of people and trying to persuade them about the truths of Jesus and the truths of the gospel. And tonight, I want to use the occasion of this sermon to try to ask a question that we should ask as followers of Jesus from time to time. And here's the question that we're going to look at for the entirety of the evening tonight. Here's the question. Are there credible reasons to be a follower of Jesus? I want to ask that question tonight. Because Peter is trying to persuade. Peter is trying to convince. And he's not just saying, just be a Christian because I say so. If you listen closely to what Nyssa just read, what you heard was all sorts of reasons Peter was giving to convince and persuade and ultimately draw as many people to believe in the gospel as possible. And so if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you love Jesus and you've been walking with him, this is going to be one of those moments where we pause to consider why we believe what we believe. We're going to think about the reasons and we're going to ask, are those reasons credible? Are those seriously, intellectually solid reasons to believe in Jesus? And then if you're tuned in tonight, or if you're in the room tonight, and you're not a Christian, or you're not even sure what to do with Christian faith, you have picked the perfect night to be here. Because tonight we're going to present some of those reasons, credible reasons, to be a follower of Jesus, even in our world today. This is what Peter gives. Peter is going to give us credible reasons to be a follower of Jesus. Now, this is why I think this is important tonight, because I want to dispel a myth that exists out there in the world today. You may have believed it yourself. I want you to understand this, that following Jesus is not an act of blind faith. In fact, I don't think blind faith is very confident faith in the first place. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that we have no interest in you following Jesus because we said so. I have no interest in you following Jesus because your mom or your dad said so. I have no interest in you following Jesus even because the Bible said it and then you just believe it and you don't think any more than that. To be a Christian is not just to check your brains at the door. I want you to know following Jesus is not an act of blind faith. I want you to know following Jesus invites us to an informed faith. Faith that is true faith, that is solid faith, that can withstand the onslaught of what comes to you on a college campus or in your workplace is an informed kind of faith based on credible reasons. I want you to understand permanently in this church that nobody is ever going to ask you to just believe because we said so. We want you to believe because of solid reasons. It's like this. Let me um, put it to you this way. I want to show you an image of this airplane right here. Uh, And this is an airplane that I have been on a number of times. In fact, some of you in this room have been on this airplane. Uh, This is an Emirates A380, okay? And the reason I've been on an Emirates A380 is because we take this exact plane right here to get from Los Angeles um, to our mission trip we do for our high school students over in Uganda. So we take the Emirates A380 from LAX to Dubai, which is 16 hours in the air, and we fly on this airplane. 
Now, this is one of the largest passenger airplanes in the world. If you go look it up, at takeoff, when the fuel tanks are full, this airplane weighs 1.2 million pounds. Now, you ever stop to think about how you get 1.2 million pounds up in the air? Like, I weigh, like, a little more than I'd like to weigh in the 200s, okay? And I can barely, like, jump into the air, okay? How do you get an airplane that weighs 1.2, 1.3 million pounds into the air. Now, here's a question. If I know how big this airplane is, why in the world would I step onto this plane? And second, why in the world would I take a bunch of people with me to step onto a plane like this? I want you to understand it is not a blind faith that puts me onto an airplane. It is an informed faith. Like, in other words, I don't get onto the airplane because I'm like, well, Emirates said it was safe and I always trust companies, Right? That's not how this works. Why do you get onto airplanes? Why did I get onto airplanes like this over and over and over again? It's because you thought about it. You've looked around. You've seen. If airplanes were constantly crashing from the sky, you would never get on an airplane. But here's what you see. Airplanes go up and they land over and over and over again. They're trained professionals. It's not like who wants to fly the plane today, right? There are reasons that I have confidence. And if I didn't have confidence that this airplane was going to land, I wouldn't get on it. And I want you to understand it's the same thing for your faith. We are not asking you to believe in Jesus, to believe the claims of the gospel, simply because we said it or simply because everyone else does. We want you to look. We want you to think. And ultimately, we want you to have reasons, informed and credible reasons on why you would believe in Jesus, just like you would have informed and credible reasons on why you would get onto an airplane. I want the same for you when it comes to your faith. This is what Peter, the same guy who preached this this sermon that we just heard tonight, says in his letters. So Peter writes this first in 2 Peter. He writes this in 1 Peter. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So in other words, Peter gives this sermon. He invites people to believe in Jesus. But then he goes, listen, it's not just that you have a blind faith. It's that you're supposed to have a reason for the hope that you have inside of you. And tonight, as we look at this sermon that Peter just gave, we're going to look at three reasons that Peter gives to believe in Jesus. Three reasons he gives. He is pleading and convincing and persuading people to believe in Jesus. And what we're going to see tonight is three reasons. I want you to know these aren't the only three reasons to believe in Jesus. They're not even necessarily the three I would give if someone asked me why I believe in God. There are dozens of arguments and reasons and things I could point to of why I'm a Christian. But tonight, I want to look at this question. What are the reasons Peter has for believing the gospel? And here's what we're going to see, these three reasons. Number one, we're going to see about the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Number two, we're going to look at the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And number three, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So in other words, Peter is not just pleading with them to become Christians because he says so, or because he wants them to take a blind leap of faith. What Peter's going to say is there are three solid reasons for you to become a Christian. And if you're here tonight or listening online, you aren't a believer, I would submit these to you for your consideration. Not because these are the only reasons to believe in Jesus, but because these are the three reasons Peter gives in the very first distinctly Christian sermon. And I want to see how that unpacks tonight. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Again, I want you to know we're not making this up. This comes right out of the text. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. So again, 
Pentecost has just happened. The Holy Spirit came down. Chaotic scene. Everyone's looking in going, what's going on? And Peter stands up and addresses the crowd. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. In other words, Peter's going, I have something to tell you. But if you don't listen carefully, you'll not understand what I'm trying to say here. And then he says one of my favorite sentences in all of the Bible. Verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Isn't that great? Peter gets up the very first Christian sermon begins with two claims. We're not drunk because it's only 9 a.m. I love that. And it's this kind of silly, crazy verse that's there in the Bible, but I actually want to use this for a second for you to see the kind of arguments Peter is making throughout this entire sermon. Because what Peter is going to do here is he's not just kind of dismissing the charge that they're drunk. Everyone thinks the first Christians are drunk because the Holy Spirit comes on them. And apparently when Christians really get in the spirit, we look drunk, but we'll deal with that later. But here's what happens. Peter is going to make an argument against them being drunk. He doesn't just blow it off and say, no, it's not that. He makes an argument. And what I'm going to argue tonight is that he makes what, what we would call in our modern age a deductive argument. Now, if it's been a while since you've been in school or you don't remember the deductive argument, let me walk you through this. Like, let me walk you through Peter's first argument, Peter's deductive argument when it comes to the charge that the early church is drunk in the morning. Number one, here's this first premise. People don't usually get drunk at 9 a.m., That's his first premise. His first premise is, listen, it's only nine in the morning. And what's the implicit thing? People don't usually get drunk at nine in the morning. And what's his evidence for the reason they're not drunk? Number two, it is presently nine in the morning. So in other words, Peter says, people don't usually get drunk at nine in the morning. It is presently nine in the morning. So what's the conclusion, therefore, of his argument? Therefore, these people are probably not drunk. That's what he goes with. Yeah, how cool is that? And now here's what happens. This is what the deductive argument does. It makes a claim. It says, if this, then that, or people usually aren't, or it kind of gives a premise. And then number two argues the premise. And if one and two are correct, then that leads that number three is correct. Now, if you wanted to argue that the first Christians were drunk, you have to argue with premise one or premise two. You could argue with premise one and say, I know plenty of people who get drunk in the morning. And you might be right. But you have to argue with that case. Or you have to argue with number two. Maybe Peter's saying it's nine in the morning, but it's actually three in the afternoon or seven at night. If you argue with these first two, you can, you can take apart a deductive argument. But the third piece of the deductive argument is the conclusion of the argument. Therefore, these people are probably not drunk. See, this is what Peter's doing. I want you to notice right from the beginning, Peter's not just dismissing concerns. He's arguing. He's putting together a cohesive picture of what it means for us to follow Jesus. I show you this not so we can just laugh about Peter's deductive argument about people being drunk, but so you can see that this is how Peter is going to structure all of his arguments. And what I want you to see tonight, again, three reasons Peter gives for why following Jesus is credible, for why the claims of the gospel are true. I want you to see this in verse 16. It goes on this way. It says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then he goes on to go, he goes on to go through that prophecy from Joel. He's quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. Like any good preacher would, he has the scripture in front of him and he's allowing the scripture and the word of God to speak. 
But I want you to understand this. His very first argument for why it is credible to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to believe the gospel, is he says that it was spoken in the prophet Joel, what the scripture said was this, that in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit. Uh, like in other words, I need you to know that in the scriptures, there's this dichotomy where in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God would come on people, but the Holy Spirit of God would leave people. That's why David has to pray in his prayer in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and take not your Holy Spirit from me. But in the New Testament, the prophecy in Joel and what Peter is pointing to is there is now a permanent presence of the Holy Spirit inside those of us who are believers. I want you to know the Holy Spirit of God dwells in your bones if you're a Christian. Not just sometimes, but all the time. And here's what Peter wants them to know. The very first reason he has for them being followers of Jesus, the credible reason he gives, reason number one is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain the argument as Peter understands it. And I want you to understand why it's good for us. Number one is that through the Holy Spirit, people can know the truth of the gospel. This is the claim that if the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, we can know that the gospel is true. We can know that we know that we know in the depth of our bones. What's the second part of the argument? It's that Christians have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them. This is the argument. We can know through the Holy Spirit. Christians have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them. What's the third? What's the therefore? It's therefore Christians can know the truth of the gospel. This is the argument about the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit, this question is all about how do we know that the gospel is true? And the first argument that Peter makes is not the argument of, well, how did the universe get here? Or is the Bible true? Or anything else. It's not a science question. It's not a philosophy question. It's a personal experience question. And here's how you can argue with this. You can say that the Holy Spirit is meaningless as evidence. If you want to argue that, you can. Go back, go back, go back. We can argue that's irrelevant. We can argue number two that the Holy Spirit of God is not inside you as a Christian. But if premise one is true, and premise two is true, then it's true that Christians, you and I, child of God, you can know the truths of the gospel. Now, now here's what I know. Some of you don't like this as an argument. Because you go, Brian, what you're saying is, I can know that God is true because of my experience of him? Experience isn't evidence, you might argue. And maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you are a believer, just going experience isn't evidence. And I want to argue that experience is evidence. I want to experience that your your experience of God is evidence of God. And here's how I want to prove it to you. I got a question for everyone in the room. If you're online, you can raise your hand too. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, not a trick question, okay? Here's the question, real simple. Raise your hand if you love your mother. Okay, most of us, and, and maybe there's some tough situations in the room, but most of us love our mother, okay? Now, if I were to ask you, Prove that you love your mother. And you're like, okay, uh, I tell her I love her all the time and I give her hugs when I see her. And I went, the only reason you do that is you don't want to be cut out of the will. This is a financial issue. Nope, gone. You're like, well, that's not true. And you're like, I send my mother a a Mother's Day card every single May. And I'm like, the only reason you do that is American capitalism and the triumph of the Hallmark Company. You'd be like, wait, no, that's not true. I love my mom. I would do anything for my mom. I'm like, you wouldn't do anything for your mom. That's just biochemical reactions going on in your brain right now. No such thing as love for your mother. I, I think at some rate you would go, okay, listen, you're arguing against all my points. And I don't know if I can beat you in a debate, Brian. But I know that I know that I know that I know that I love my mother. And at some rate, you're just going to have to go with, Brian, I don't know that I can explain it to you, but I know I love my mom. 
And you can argue against me all day, but there's an experience in the depth of my soul that says I love my mother. Or let me ask it to you this way. Um, If I were to begin to argue with you that you began to exist five minutes ago, five minutes ago, and you're like, Brian, I've been listening to you preach for more than five minutes. And I say, no, 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 you have not been listening to me preach. You existed five, you came into existence five minutes ago, preloaded with memories of everything you think happened in your life. You're like, what? I'm like, yeah, everything that happened in your life, all the food that's in your belly, all preloaded, like Matrix style stuff. Like that's what's going on here. And you're like, no, that just can't be the case. And I'm like, it is the case. And you're like, but I have memories of five years ago. I'm like, it was put into you, just into your mind. Here's what you do. You go, Brian, I don't know that I can prove you wrong. But every bit of my experience says I've existed for more than five minutes, right? And you would have to at some point say there is evidence. And I am not sure that any argument you make, Brian, can convince me that I'm only five minutes old. What are we trying to say here? That the issue of the Holy Spirit, this truth that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, allows us to know that we know that we know that we know that God is who he says he is. That he has saved us and he's rescued us and that Jesus is who he says he is. This is what the internal witness of the Holy Spirit allows us to do. Like, let me put it this way. I want to give you a distinction that a philosopher and apologist named William Lane Craig says. And listen, I'll just recommend what he writes to you. He has a website called Reasonable Faith. I just think he's so brilliant, writes so well. But he makes this distinction. He says that the Holy Spirit can allow us to know the truth of the gospel. Like the Holy Spirit just allows us to know that Jesus is who he said he was, that God loves me, that he died for my sins and rose from the dead for my salvation. But then he goes on to say this. He says, listen, reason, evidence, and love, like the Christian life, allows us to show the truth of the gospel. And so listen, I understand that me saying to you that the Holy Spirit of God is the first credible reason for you to believe the gospel doesn't make you feel super well-equipped to go up to your atheist professor and be like, oh yeah, God lives in me, right? I get that. But here's what we need to know. We can know the truth of the gospel even if we're not able to win a debate about it. You can know that God lives inside your bones even if someone could beat you in an argument because the Holy Spirit allows us to know the truth of the gospel where there's other reasons, we're going to get to some of them, that allow us to show the truth of the gospel. It's like this. So um, just a couple days ago, me and my family posted a little photo on, um, on, on the social medias of all different kinds. And this little photo, if you can't see, is that we're expecting our next baby. Yeah! Woo! Baby number three! And it's a sweet baby girl. Oh, it's so great. We don't even know her name yet. We haven't decided. We haven't met her or anything. But if you were to ask me, if you're, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Some people think I'm just bringing this photo up to tell you that we're pregnant, and it's true. But anyway, um, if you were to ask me, do you love your third child? Do you love your daughter who hasn't been born yet? I would say yes. But what if you were to say to me, well, how, prove it prove you love your daughter. I'm like, I I don't know. Like I just do. And you're like, you've never met her. You've never spoken to her. You've never given her anything. You've never hugged her. You've never kissed her. You've never done anything, Brian. I would have to be like, okay, you're right on all of those things. But I know that I know that I know that I love my daughter. She hasn't been born yet. And I know that I love her. And so you might beat me in an argument. You might convince someone that I don't love my daughter, but I know that I love her in the core of my being. Listen, the witness of the Holy Spirit allows us to say, I know that I know that I know. And I might lose an argument in a dorm room late at night. I might be embarrassed in a college classroom someday. I might read an argument online that I don't know how to answer. But the Holy Spirit allows us to say, even if I can't show it, I know it. 
Because God lives inside of my bones. This was the first thing Peter has to say. The first thing Peter wants us to know is that in the last days, the days we're living in, the Holy Spirit of God has been poured out on us. It goes on this way in verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And that line that I've underlined here is so significant. In other words, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. He, he did all kinds of wonders. He did all kinds of signs. Like he did all of these things. But here's what's so brilliant about Peter's argument. He's not saying, believe me when I tell you that this Jesus guy was crazy. He stands up in front of a bunch of hostile people, thousands of people who don't want to believe in Jesus. And he goes, as you yourselves know. Like in other words, I want you to know that the early message of Jesus and the preaching about the gospel was not built on a bunch of stories that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It, it happened in the midst of a people who were like, it was last year. It was right over there on that hill, remember? It was right there. No, 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 you were there. I know you were there. Don't you deny it. You were there, right? It was built around a bunch of people who saw it happening. And those people who saw it happening sat down and wrote down what they saw happening. And that's what forms the basis of the second half of your Bible, the New Testament. Listen, I want us to understand this clearly. Like the New Testament was not built on all sorts of myths and fairy tales and legend. The New Testament is based on eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. The New Testament you have in your hand is written by eyewitnesses. And those who were not eyewitnesses were working with people who were eyewitnesses saying, what did you see? And they wrote it down. Tell me about that parable. They wrote it down. Tell me about that mirror. Where did it happen? And they wrote it down. And here's why it's so important. Because eyewitness testimony allowed the people in the time that Peter was preaching this sermon to go, oh, hold on, that didn't happen, right? In other words, eyewitness testimony means the whole story of Jesus is falsifiable. The people at the time could have gone, that's not true at all. That didn't happen. But that's not what occurs. Peter says, you all know this. You saw this. You are eyewitnesses. Here's the second reason he gives. It's the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. The eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Here's the deductive argument for those of you who want to hear the argument. It's basically this. It's that eyewitnesses are considered as reliable sources. If you were in a courtroom battle and there was something going on where someone accused someone else of doing something, stealing someone, hurting someone, murdering someone, something awful, bringing eyewitnesses up to the stand who said, I saw it, I know what he was wearing, I know where he was, I saw what he did, I was looking at it. And if multiple eyewitnesses get up and say something happened, that is considered credible evidence, not in the ancient world, but in today's world. Like today, if you were to go into court, eyewitness accounts are considered credible. Here's the second argument, and this is the contentious one. The New Testament documents contain eyewitness accounts about Jesus. And that's the contentious one here. Like no one contends with the idea that eyewitnesses are credible sources or our entire legal system collapses. But here's the contentious claim. The contentious claim that people are going to wrestle with for the rest of time is that the New Testament contains eyewitness accounts. Like people who actually saw Jesus do what he did and they're written down for us. There's some arguments around that and I'm not gonna get into all of them now, but I'll blow through some of them quickly. There's, a, there's the claim that they have to be eyewitness accounts. Like in other words, they say, we saw this with our own eyes. And if someone said, you didn't see this with our own eyes, it could have been discredited so quickly. Like if Christian faith was built on eyewitness accounts and everyone knew they were lying, 
they could easily say, wait, that wasn't the case. It would be like this. If you told me you were an eyewitness of something that happened in Paris tonight, I'd be like, no, you weren't. You were here, not in Paris, right? It could easily be disproved in the ancient world, but of course it wasn't. Um, They present an unflattering picture of Jesus and his followers. Have you ever noticed in the gospels, um, the followers of Jesus, like the earliest disciples, do not look like superheroes. They look like total flunkies, right? They don't get anything right. And you would think if they were making up a narrative about Jesus, they would be like, right in the time where I was awesome, right? That's not what they did. (laughs) They're writing in times where they're arguing and bickering and failing to understand Jesus. It's like an honest telling of a story. Um, The earliness, like the ancientness of the documents, which means they were written in the first century. And there are scholars who are saying, no, it's hundreds of years after Jesus lived and died. No, the oldest evidence we have is that within several decades of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and ascension into heaven, we have the documents of the New Testament. And one of the ways we know we have such ancient, incredible documents is the amount of paper, the amount of papyrus, the amount of ancient manuscripts we have when it comes to Jesus. Like, I don't have time to get into this fully, but who here in college ever read anything from, like, Plato? Whoever read, like, Plato? Okay, a bunch of you read Plato. Um, Do you know how many manuscripts we have of what Plato, um, what, what was written from Plato? Seven. Like we have seven from the ancient world. You know how many ancient manuscripts we have of the New Testament? 22,000. 22,000. Like it's not even close. There's no other ancient thing or movement or idea or person who has as much documentation as Jesus does. It was written down and copied over and over and over again. And the copies are remarkable in how similar they are. Like, I want you to understand that there is ancient documentation about Jesus. There's multiple lines of tradition written in an oral culture that could remember stories for hundreds of years, word for word. Again, this is a contentious argument, but I believe it's an absolutely credible argument for anyone who thinks through the facts. And the the result, the therefore is this. Therefore, the New Testament documents are reliable sources about Jesus. Like, in other words, Peter gets up, And his first thing is, listen, the Holy Spirit lives in you and you can know the truth of the gospel. But the second thing he gets up and says is, listen, we all saw this. Like we all looked on this with our own eyes. And those same people who looked on it with their own eyes wrote it down for us to know with surety. So when you read the gospels, you're not just reading some story of someone who had some ideas about Jesus. You're reading from Mark who sat with Peter and was like, Peter, uh, what did he say there? Okay, cool. What did he he do there? Okay, where did he do this? That was in Samaria? Okay, and he wrote it down. You're sitting with Luke who who learns everything he knows and and studies it thoroughly. You're looking at John, who is one of the disciples of Jesus. Matthew, who is one of the disciples of Jesus. They wrote it down because there were eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Peter makes a big deal that there are eyewitness accounts and that everyone saw this happen. And then here's the final thing he's going to make a big deal of. Verse 29. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. In other words, David, King David, King David of slaving Goliath, uh, Goliath, <laughs> Goliath woo, uh, fame, that guy. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> like that's how he breathes. Like everyone, he's dead. His, his, his tomb is that way. And you could go to his tomb if you'd like to. But, verse 30, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him in an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. I want you to understand this tonight. 
It is impossible to overstate how essential the resurrection was for the first Christians. It is impossible to overstate how essential and central the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was so shocking, so overwhelming, so powerful that catalyzed 120 Christians to within a couple hundred years take over the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is something you read about in history books, but the church lives on to today. The resurrection is what propelled them toward that. Like, I want you to know the earliest Christians weren't like, what's important to us? A bunch of things. What the earliest Christians said is that Jesus rose from the dead, and this is what matters most. Uh, Like, I'll say something that may actually surprise some of you tonight. I want you to know that the early church did not believe in the resurrection because of the Bible. Now, if you know me, you know I'm a Bible guy, right? I'm always up here banging on about the Bible. Read your Bible. Know your Bible. Trust the Bible. But I want you to know the reason that they didn't believe the resurrection because of the Bible It's because the New Testament part that talks about the resurrection, that part of the Bible wasn't written yet. So they didn't look at a text and go, oh, Jesus rose from the dead and then start to believe it. I want you to know that the early church believed in the Bible because of the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, because Jesus said, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'll come back a few days later. And then he pulled it off. That was the basis for their faith. Now the Bible comes in and interprets and helps them understand and helps give them perspective of what the resurrection actually meant. But I need you to know that the resurrection, the fact that Jesus shook off death three days later and got up, that moment, that event was the centerpiece of the early church. And it should be the centerpiece of our faith. Like our goal, we don't come to faith because of the Bible. Like, Like the Bible is the revealed word of God and I want us to treasure it and love it. But I want us to know that the centerpiece for the Apostle Paul in the ancient world, the great proclaimer of the Christian gospel, was the resurrection. In fact, he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your preaching, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Like, this is Paul. And he goes, listen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if he's still in the grave somewhere, he goes, it's useless. You're all dead in your sins, so forget about it. This is what he said. And I want you to know, me, Brian Howard, if you could prove to me that Jesus' bones were still in the grave somewhere in Jerusalem, he's dead, he never rose up from the dead, he died on a cross, buried in the grave, and he's dead just like everyone else, I would quit Christianity tomorrow. I want you to know how heavy this is, how serious this is, and how central it is for the Christian. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the happy ending to the cross story. It is the central event, the foundation of Christian faith. Everything in the New Testament interprets Jesus in light of the resurrection, in light of the empty tomb. Here's Peter's third argument. His third argument, and the most important argument that we will make about the faith we have in Jesus, the most important argument we'll make about what it means to be a Christian and why it is credible for you to believe in Jesus Christ is this, reason number three, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the centerpiece of the New Testament. Everything in our faith hinges upon whether or not Jesus is dead in a grave somewhere or alive, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's number one. Here's the argument as it lays out. The resurrection of Jesus would be evidence of the truth of Christianity. Right, I already said this, but if a guy says, I'm gonna die and then don't worry, I'll get up a few days later and move on and he pulls that off, you listen to that guy, okay? If he says, listen, I'm going to die. It's going to be very public. Everyone's going to see me die. I'm going to die at the hands of the most brutal dictators who have ever lived the Roman Empire. They're going to crucify and torture and murder me on a cross. But don't worry, I'll lay in the grave and come up three days later. And he pulls it off. Anything that guy says, I'm on board with. Anything that guy says, I'm all in on. I'm not saying this to be a joke. I'm saying this because Jesus actually called his shot and rose up from the grave. If 
the resurrection of Jesus is true. It would be evidence for the truth of Christianity. And then here's the bold claim of Christian faith. Number two, number two. There are good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And listen, I'm, I, like I said, I'm, I, just, I love to go into all of them tonight. Like I'd love to just like play around with like the evidence for the resurrection. And, and for some of you, you're like, oh, you're not getting to all of that because you don't really believe. No, it's just like I could go on for hours. Entire tomes are sitting in my office that are this big on the resurrection of Jesus. There's a book I have called Resurrection of the Son of God. That's a 700-page argument for how Jesus was known to be raised. His tomb was empty. It was discovered by his women followers. It was proclaimed throughout the land that Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. And you know what the easiest thing in the world would have been? If Jesus was not out of the grave, if his bones were still rotting in a tomb somewhere, everyone could have been like, he's here, right? It would have been the easiest thing to disprove early Christianity. He's here. And then if the claim is the disciples stole the body, and then everyone went to the tomb and they're like, it's empty. And the disciples are like, he's alive. And they knew they were lying. Here's the only problem with your thesis. Every single disciple except one, John, who gets exiled to Patmos, writes the book of Revelation there. All the other 11 disciples got murdered, killed, and martyred for their faith. And none of them recanted. You would think at least one of them who was like, yeah, we stole Jesus' body and put it in another tomb. You would think one of them would have said it. None of them ever said it. These Jewish people who had no reason to believe in a resurrection of one single individual suddenly believed Jesus rose from the dead. Like, I want you to know the ancient Jewish belief in resurrection was that at the end of time, when all of history ends, God will raise all the righteous people up to new life. That's what Jewish people believed. There was no thought in Jewish thought that one person would rise up from the grave before everyone else. And then suddenly Jesus does it and they start believing it. They had no reason to believe it. They had no prior evidence for this. They had no prior notion this would happen. Anytime someone wants to convince you that there are dying and rising gods in the ancient world, never did anyone actually presume that happened in real time and space. So there are all kinds of stories about a God who died and rose, but it's like the seasons going back and forth. No one ever said a human being actually did this. And no one in the ancient world thought this actually happened. Like we're so, we're so prone to think like those ancient world people were stupid. They probably thought people rose from the dead all the time. No, the ancients understood a few things well, and they understood like where do babies come from and no one gets up from the grave. They got that. They, they, they were not as dumb as you think they were. And here's what they came to believe that against all the odds, against everything they wanted to believe, this Jesus who had been crucified was now alive again. This is the scandalous claim of the Christian faith. And again, it is the claim that has brought the Christian faith up. It has raised up on this claim. And I would challenge anyone here who is not a believer to investigate this claim. Not every other claim, not everything the Bible says. Listen, there's too much for you to cover. Investigate this claim. Because if it's true that Jesus, the resurrection would be evidence for the truth of Christianity, and if it's true that there are good reasons to believe in the resurrection, the therefore is this, the therefore is that there is conclusive evidence for the truth of Christianity. Again, Peter gets up in front of them, and he's not just pleading with them, like, believe me because I said so. He's trying to give them credible reasons for being a follower of Jesus. He's trying to convince people who are hostile toward him. Listen, the ancient world where, where Peter was preaching, they weren't like, tell us more about Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus, and they did. And then three days later, Jesus gets up from the grave. And now you've got this whole series of sermons where people are proclaiming to the ancient world, persuading them to believe in Jesus, not just because they said so, but because of credible reasons. 
Listen, I want to review. Here are the three good reasons. Here are the three reasons that Peter gives for believing the truth of the gospel. The first that we just saw, the first was the internal witness of the Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and we can know that we know that we know. Even if someone else beats us in a debate, even if someone else argues better than us, even if someone's smarter than us or has a PhD attached to their name, we can know. Number two is that it's based on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus that people actually saw this and wrote this down. And in every culture that's ever lived, eyewitness testimony matters. Third and finally, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The most stunning fact in all of human history. In fact, British scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, this is why as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. In other words, the central claim of the Christian faith is this third one that Jesus Christ actually is alive. And once I can believe that and get my mind around that and allow for that to actually be true, everything else falls into place. See, here's what I need you to know tonight, that there are credible reasons to be a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus, I want you to know you're not crazy. I want you to know you're not caught up in some idea. I want you to know that serious thinkers throughout all of history have agreed with you that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And I want you to know if you're not a believer and you're just checking this out, you're listening online or you're in the room tonight, I want you to know that there are serious, credible reasons for you to be a follower of Jesus. And we're never going to insult your intelligence enough for just say like, ah, don't worry about your arguments, just come to faith. We're always going to ask you to have a faith that is built on reason. And tonight you heard three of them, the internal witness of the spirit, the eyewitness testimonies about Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. There's more we didn't cover. We didn't talk about the arguments around the creation of the universe, the cosmological argument, the contingency argument, the fine-tuning of the universe, that it's absolutely absurd that human life should exist anywhere in the world, and yet it does anywhere in the universe. Uh, The existence of moral values and duties and how those point to God. The existence of free will. Like, in effect, atheists are now kind of basically admitting, like, if you don't, uh, on naturalism, on the idea that there's no supernatural, there is no such thing as free will, your brain's just tricking you into reproducing yourself. Like, that's all you've got. And then there's the absurdity of a worldview without God and creating a coherent worldview that you'll actually live in. Uh, Like, I want you to know there's argument after argument, and we didn't cover all of those tonight, but we covered three. Three that Peter thought were important. See, I want you to know there's credible reasons And some of you tomorrow or the next day or the next day after that will go to a college campus or a workplace or a family gathering where you're the only Christian and you are told that serious, thinking, intelligent people don't believe in Jesus. And I want you to know that's not true. I want you to know that the smartest people throughout all of human history have come to believe that there is a God who created them, has a plan for them, and has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Smart people believing something doesn't make it true, right? But smart people believing something doesn't mean, it means, it means that you are not crazy for believing it too. And some of you have just been walking in this lack of confidence because you are swimming in this secular culture that says to believe in Jesus is crazy and there's no real arguments toward it. And it's not true. There are serious, thoughtful, credible arguments, reasons for you to believe. I want to return to what Peter says here as we close in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 5. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Like in other words, we want to be prepared to say, listen, I believe in God first because I've experienced him. I know him and you can know him too. I believe in Jesus because I actually believe the New Testament gives us an eyewitness account of who this man was. I believe in Jesus and I believe he saved me because he rose from the dead. And I think that's one of the most incredible facts of human history that everything turns on. So you have a reason for the hope you believe in. 
But then finally, Peter says this, and I want to make sure you get this. But do this with gentleness and respect. Like, listen, I just want to be clear with everyone in the room. Your job is not to win debates, win arguments. Your job is not to destroy atheists. Your job is not to dunk on people who don't believe in Jesus. That is not your job. It is not your call. Our call as Christians is to present the hope of Jesus with two words, gentleness and respect. We want to respect those who don't believe what we believe. We want to be gentle with those who aren't sure they have faith like we have. We want to have gentleness and we want to have respect. That's what we are called to do. And here's why we can have gentleness and respect. Because we don't ultimately believe it's our job to win every argument. Like, let me just free you from this. If you're in your dorm room or at your company or in your family and there's questions being thrown at you that you can't answer, it doesn't mean your faith is not legit. Like, I actually want to tell you this tonight. I want to close with this statement that our hope is not found in our ability to answer every question. Our hope is not found in our ability to answer every question about the age of the earth or where dinosaurs came from or what about evolution or what about suffering or if God exists, then why this or what about this? There's a thousand questions that are going to come your way, child of God. And I want you to know that the great hope for the Christian is not found in your ability to answer every question, to win every argument, to take down every other person in a debate and praise God for that. It means you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I want you to know what your hope is found on. Your hope is not found on your ability to win every argument, answer every question, and crush the other person in a debate. I want you to know that our hope is found in our ability to answer one question. One question. And the one question that I want everyone in this room who follows Jesus to be able to answer is this question. It is three words. Who is Jesus? Because once you answer the question, who is Jesus, everything else falls to the side. Because if Jesus was a myth, or if Jesus never existed, or if Jesus was just some made-up character of history, we have no business defending everything else. But if Jesus is who Jesus says he was, I want you to know that everything else falls into place. Everything else comes together. You do not have to have an answer to every question. But child of God, hear me on this. You must have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? And to trust the eyewitnesses of Jesus to trust the revealed word of God about Jesus that reflects back on this resurrection king is to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And can I close tonight, give you an epic poem written just within a few years after Jesus's life that declares the glory of who Jesus is, that tells us that whatever other questions, whatever other debates, whatever other arguments we have in this world, here's who your Jesus is. Can I remind you of these words out of Colossians chapter one and verse 15? It says, the son... The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the crucified and resurrected king who lives and reigns and rules over all things. And when you know who that Jesus is, that is the credible reason for you to stand on. 
It is the credible truth for you to be able to walk with confidence in a world that is hostile to your faith, in a world that is dismissive of your faith, in a world that doesn't want anything to do with your faith. Our question is, who is Jesus? And when we cry out to Jesus in this room, we are declaring him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Does anyone else in this room believe that Jesus is who he says he was, did what he said he'd do, will do what he promises to do in your life and in this world? So let's stand to our feet right now, everyone in this room. We're gonna worship, we're gonna sing, we're gonna cry out to this Jesus, the one who is over all things, rules in all things, reigns in all things. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your son, Jesus. God, I pray for the person who's been walking in doubts, not sure they believe. I pray tonight would bolster their faith. I pray for the young lady who's on a college campus and just feels assaulted like no one believes in Jesus. No one believes in God. She feels silly and outnumbered. I pray that you would fill her with the Holy Spirit confidence to know that she knows. I pray for the young man who comes from a family that rejects Christ and rejects God. May he know the truth of the resurrection. May he stand firm on the truth of your word. God, would you make us a people filled with confidence, filled with reasons for hope. Help us to communicate it with gentleness and respect. And above all, help us to know Jesus, the Christ, the crucified one, the resurrected one. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said.